Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 15th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Today's a special COVID calls, which is gonna run from 4 to 6 p.m. Most days you find us here at 5 p.m. These are free and open to the public, and you're welcome to join us. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm serving as the host for these discussions. We're streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel, or you can email me or you can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word, send suggestions for guests and topics, and do please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. On Monday on COVID calls, we have a young researchers roundtable. I'm gonna to talk to five early career disaster researchers from many different disciplines. We're gonna talk about the way that the pandemic is impacting their thinking and their work, maybe in some cases even changing the trajectory of their work as they go forward. I'm gonna be joined by Nania Campbell, Ryan Hagen, Yansil Kang, Zachary Loeb, and Valerie Marlowe. So you won't wanna miss that discussion on Monday, 5 p.m. As of today, there are globally 1,076,017 confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 998,047 cases yesterday. 261,438 of those are in the United States, up from 234,462 yesterday. There are now a total of 6,699 deaths reported in the United States, up from 5,648 yesterday. And a new number, which I first reported yesterday, again from the Coronavirus Resource Center, there are now reported 9,428 survivors of COVID-19 in the United States. Back in February, uh, about 10 years ago, I had the chance to do something I do every four years, and that was to visit New Hampshire on the eve of the primary. This year was really special for me because I took my family. We crowded into tiny meeting halls and school gyms, elbow to elbow with crowds. We shook hands with Amy Klobuchar and Andrew Yang and Pete Buttigieg. We even met Judy Woodruff from PBS, which was really thrilling. And now that seems like a lifetime ago. Those crowds, that closeness, that excitement over the political process. But it is still election season and Though we and the candidates and the media are all engaging from behind our doors and our screens. I wanted to talk to a political historian and an analyst about the election 2020, which will certainly be remembered as one of the strangest circumstances for an election in American history. And I was thrilled when today's guest agreed. So let me introduce him. My guest is Julian Zelizer, the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs, the Woodrow Wilson School of Princeton University. He's the author and editor of 19 books on American political history, including just to list a couple, Governing America, The Revival of Political History, and The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. Most recently, he co-authored with Kevin Cruz the book Fault Lines, history of the United States since 1974. He's published over 900 op-eds, including his weekly column, which I'm sure many of you follow on CNN.com. Julian Zelizer, thank you so much for joining the discussion today on COVID calls. Thanks for having me with you. So I'd like to remind everyone to please ask questions in the YouTube live chat, or you can email them to me, or you can tweet them however you want to try to reach me uh, to get involved in this discussion today with Julian Zelizer. So uh, Julian, I guess I'll just ask, um, we'll start, we'll get to history, but start with the present. I wonder if you would give us your assessment of the Trump administration's response to COVID-19. Um, weak areas, any strengths? What's your assessment? Well, I think it's, it's fair to say there's been many weak areas. Uh, this has been a halting and delayed response uh, given the situation uh, that we're in right now. It's hard to look at what the administration has done and find a lot of room for praise. Uh, it, it took too long to respond uh, in general. He himself uh, denied the situation well into uh, the crisis moment 
and he didn't really use the presidential muscle that he has, ironically enough, given he's willing to flex it in other areas, to lean on governors to do what was necessary, to invoke the Defense Production Act, to start having industry comply. Uh, and even through this day, he continues, uh, as we're recording this, it's a day after he re a letter was released uh, to Senator Schumer, kind of engaging in what we might call traditional Trumpian rhetoric uh, toward his opponents. And, and all of this doesn't add up uh, to a very successful response. This is, you know, Herbert Hoover in the early 1930s dealing with the Depression, uh, maybe worse. And... I don't have the, the only places you could say, well, there's signs of, of progress is now uh, he's starting to do some of the things that he should have done about a month ago. Uh, you know, finally, he is acknowledging the severity of this disease uh, and the cost it might bear. Finally, he's calling for the kinds of measures, at least to some extent, that his own experts have been saying are necessary. And finally, he's acknowledging the science, uh, which he hadn't done, of what's going on. Well, I agree with your assessment. And yet at the same time, I've been surprised to see, I mean, often I have to check my own uh, interpretations of Trump's uh, actions against public opinion polling. And the polling, to me, has left me scratching my head a little bit. On the one hand, the numbers have, have ticked up, but they don't seem to have ticked up maybe as much as you might consider in the midst of a national crisis. I don't know, what have you thought about the, the polling around this? I haven't looked at it today, but he's been, he picked up three or four points over where he was before this all started. I haven't seen it today, although I saw a headline that it's already going down, the, wow. the boom is going down. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, and, and I also saw that it's gone up for a lot of, of leaders in these countries, more than his own ratings. and. And even other figures in the U.S. have experienced a bigger boom than him. So it's not, uh, it's not simply him. Uh, look, part of it is the same story we would have been talking about two months ago. He retains pretty loyal support in the Republican Party that's uh, kind of unyielding. And we're seeing, even with a stress test like this, at least initially, it can hold its own. And maybe there is an additional bounce from the, one you're, the, the poll you're talking about uh, when there's a crisis, people are scared, they're looking to someone, and he is the someone. The president is always the someone. But but I don't imagine that is going to hold uh, so long. Uh, this is not even like rallying around the flag in a time of war, which is usually when you see the boom, because this is here. It's on the home front. It's, it's more like the Civil War, uh, meaning we are feeling it, we are experiencing it. And unless he delivers progress very quickly, uh, the support that he's gained, I, I would assume, will thin very quickly. So do you then extrapolate from that that you don't really expect much of a difference in terms of the election? Um, you know, these numbers, if they're just a little bit increased and now they're going back to the mean, um, then people who support Trump support Trump and people who don't, don't. And, and that's that. We don't actually imagine this pandemic moving the needle for him much in terms of getting ready for the election. Well, I think it could move, if, if the Democrats handled this well, I could imagine it moving the needle for them in a positive way. Uh, meaning when you have a president in this kind of situation, te it tends to go very poorly for them when they run for re-election, whether it's Hoover in 32, Carter in 1980, or, or pick your example of a president in crisis. Uh, and none of them, I, I would say maybe even Hoover was facing what we're facing right now. Um, and, and in terms of the, un we don't even know when this is going to end. So, so theoretically, Democrats should capitalize and they have a candidate now who has uh, lots of experience dealing with major uh, situations, including uh, these kinds of, um, of pandemics. Uh, but I don't know that the only way it might affect him in a positive way is not rallying around the flag. It's the inability of Democrats in the next few months to mount a campaign, meaning not being able to mount a traditional television campaign, not being able to get any attention, and literally not being able to go and hold rallies and have mm -hmm. a regular convention. All of that can be wiped away. And, and that's where the incumbent has an advantage, even if he's doing poorly, um, because he has the platform from now until November. That's guaranteed. So you mentioned the Democrats. I wonder if you'd be willing to, just like your assessment of Trump, 
how do you assess the way um, Bernie Sanders is still in, in the race and, and, uh, and as well as, you know, Biden's campaign and the DNC more generally? How are they doing with messaging as far as you can tell? How's the Biden campaign doing with all this? It's an extremely crowded conversation right now. I've barely seen him at all. I, I'm not surprised by that, but I just wonder what, what do you think of how the campaigns and how the DMC are working? Well, I think I see a lot of problems. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's not as if his support is imploding. So if you're a Democrat, you can be uh, happy with, with that. And I think it remains strong. I think the responses of Democrats have generally been in line with what the scientific community is calling for. So if, if you're a uh, a, a voter who's not a total uh, kind of Trump-based voter, I think what Democrats are doing aligns with what you hear has to be done. Uh, that said, that's different than kind of the political messaging and the political outreach. Their candidate has, has been silent. Uh, I know he has an, uh, a podcast and I know he's done some interviews and clips, but he's not a major presence in our national conversation right now. And that might be all right for a while, uh, but this is valuable time in campaigns. I mean, the primary season, even if you're competing with someone, is a way to get your message and prep the voters and get them thinking into the summer. Uh, that's gone. I think Democrats have a natural advantage. This is a crisis that's resulting in big government, and it's resulting, as most crises do, uh, in support for strong federal intervention. That's a natural Democratic issue. And... I've been surprised that you haven't really heard at the national level kind of Democrats making that case and, and being at the forefront of what's going on. Uh, in fact, Trump was the one who I think yesterday or two days ago called for a kind of public works program. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, look, the, the Biden-Sanders competition uh, as an ongoing issue, it's hard to believe uh, right now, especially since uh, he secured such a good lead. But the inability of the party to control that in the middle of this crisis suggests there's a problem. So, so I don't think they've imploded. I don't think it's all doom and gloom, but I think there have been some serious red flags uh, and this will not end again. It's, it's going to continue probably through the election, maybe in different parts of the country. We don't know how it's going to unfold, but it won't disappear. So they need to figure out how do you campaign? One other thing, I mean, another kind of issue that's looming and, a few people are addressing in op-eds like myself, but uh, is the election itself and how mm -hmm. it's going to work. And uh, if there's low turnout, if there's very low turnout, it, that w might very well benefit President Trump. And, mm -hmm. and to avoid that with these conditions, that will require action by the states uh, and maybe even money from Congress so that states have universal mail-in voting, early voting in place in places they don't have it. All of this needs to be done very soon. Uh, but I could imagine Democrats are hurt if that doesn't happen because you'll see, you could see, you know, very low rates of turnout in mm -hmm. November uh, if it's possible at all. I wanted to ask you about that because I know there was some debate around in that stimulus package debate about federal, so as I understood it, federal money uh, to support states in mail-in voting. How many, uh, most states don't have mail-in voting. In most states, it's are not really set up for a kind of a distant election, are they? Can they move quickly enough to actually bring that about? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, what I've heard from election people is it is possible. It won't be easy. But we're, we are still uh, in, in, we're in April now. I'm looking at my calendar. Uh, you lose track of time uh, in this situation because you're in the same place all the time. Uh, and, and, you know, we're several months into it. If we could pass a multi-trillion dollar stimulus bill, I can imagine you can get a lot of the infrastructure for mail-in voting uh, in place. It's hard. You are right. Some states that will require circumventing uh, traditional legislative paths, I think in New York even, uh, you'd need a constitutional convention to get a whole thing in place. You'd need some declaration of emergency. Mm -hmm. You need processing capacity. All this comes in. Not only is it delivered, but you need to process it quickly uh, and, and relatively smoothly. You need uh, measures to make sure votes are counted well. There's, there's a lot that has to be done. But I don't know, given the severity of what we're doing, if we can do it for the economy, we can certainly do it for the election. So 
there's a perennial, it comes from the left and sometimes from the, from the right, there's a perennial conspiracy theory, which I don't want to give any, any credence to, but that any given president is looking for a reason to cancel their reelection, to, to have a, use a crisis and then cancel election day. I don't see that. But is there any precedent for thinking or any, any rules out there that could trip um, some process to actually move election day? Or is there a threshold of voting turnout below which that raises constitutional issues or we're charging ahead for November and that's that? I mean, I am not a constitutional expert from, but what I hear and read from all of them is no, you can't just do that. There's no way for the president to cancel the election. We haven't been in a situation uh, where this was really on the table. Uh, during the flu uh, in 1918, the Spanish flu, as it was called, voting for midterms went and we did it. And that was a very severe crisis, as you obviously know. Uh, during wartime, during depression, we have had our elections over and over again, even when the system is strained. So uh, there, there is no turnout kind of requirement. There is no way for the president to constitutionally just say it's not going to happen. Not that he won't try. I could imagine him looking for some declaration of emergency power uh, to, to maybe do this, but, but, but no one is supporting the idea that this, this can be done. Uh, and, and so the odds are, even if it's a very low turnout election, it will still be an election nonetheless. Under kind of the traditions of American politics, um, of course, we have campaigns in the middle of wars, 1864 and you know, 1944 and the middle of the Vietnam War, as you mentioned, Carter a minute ago, that's nothing new. Um, I do think a sort of a deference to the executive uh, as a person that you give um, some leeway to in that context is, has been historically in America important. You know, the opponent wouldn't come out every single day and, and criticize the way they're handling, handling something. Um, and it seems like that's how Joe Biden is acting. You were talking about Biden and, and his podcast maybe, but his sort of missing voice in this. Is he playing by old rules that shouldn't hold anymore? I mean, Trump isn't playing by those old, old, old rules. Why is Biden playing by those rules? Where is Joe Biden? Well, Biden is an old rules kind of candidate. And until now, you know, the, the bet of his, of his campaign, which, is, which worked at least until recently, was there was something appealing in this moment uh, given that President Trump has stretched the rules or just totally shattered them beyond recognition, some almost nostalgic kind of campaign for someone who would still do things the old way, uh, who would still believe that normalcy is possible uh, in this country. And, and to some extent, it worked. His polls held. He was able to pull off uh, the, the kind of primary victories that he promised, at least in the first one. So we don't even know how the rest are going to go. Uh, but I think you're actually right. I mean, um, when, when a president is failing this poorly to handle something that has this profound effect on all the families, there's no reason for the Democratic candidate not to be out front, both criticizing him aggressively and saying what he would do differently. Um, that doesn't undermine the president. Nothing Biden is gonna do would make this uh, kind of more problematic but it does kind of give uh, other voters a, a path for the future. And I do think if he just plays by the old rules, as he has now been shrunk uh, to a little box, uh, you know, mm -hmm. on, on computer screens, that's gonna be really problematic. Mm -hmm. And I would say one other thing, I've thought about this, it, often when you have pres uh, opposition people play by these rules, it, it's bad for the country. Uh, Often early in wars like Iraq uh, in 2002 and 2003, Democrats, the lesson was they sh shouldn't have signed on so quickly. They mm -hmm. were scared to protest. They were scared to take on President George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. Had there been more criticism, we might not have ended up in that quagmire. And, and I can give many examples. So not only is he playing by old rules that might not work, it's not necessarily the best thing for the country, which is always at the forefront of Biden's concern. You, you have some historical examples that you're thinking about when you say that, where you think had a more uh, vigorous debate in election season actually either shifted the incumbent's policies slightly or somehow resulted in a different outcome for the country? 
Sure, in 64, Democrats, it was intra-party, were silent generally about what uh, Lyndon Johnson was doing in Vietnam when he asked for the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in August of 64. They don't want to do anything to upset, you know, uh, his own re-election chances. And, and it's disastrous. It's, it's mm -hmm. a disastrous moment. Had more Democrats who privately had misgivings about why we were doing anything in the region and what the goal was been more vocal, uh, we might have been in a better place. So that's uh, just one example uh, and a big one that we should think about. Well, uh, also, like you said, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I tend to agree with what you said. November is coming and the election is coming. There's certain traditions and norms around that, but there's a lot, um, a little bit more flexibility around the way parties can operate, right? I mean, yeah. we still have to get through these primaries and caucuses and territories and states. We still have to have a conventions, I suppose, or do we have to have conventions? Let's talk about that a little bit. I, I don't, I mean, we don't have to. Uh, you know, uh, this year, the Republicans canceled their primaries in, in a lot of states, which was upsetting to some Republicans who don't like President Trump, where the administration essentially worked with the Republican Party to take other options off the table. Mm. Conventions have been done in different ways. They've been reformed. They can be moved around. They don't have to happen. I mean, I guess you could have a virtual nomination take place. I don't know if it physically has to happen. Uh, we haven't been in this kind of territory. I think the Democrats certainly are going to have to reimagine and, and possibly the Republicans how you do this. How do you campaign using the technological resources that we now have available that we're speaking on uh, to, to, to campaign in a different way? But right now between April and June, uh, which is traditionally still, you know, high time for primaries and caucuses, they're just not going to happen. Wisconsin's doing theirs, which is very questionable decision. Uh, given everything that's going Absolutely. on, yeah. and the Democrats move their convention to August, although it's unclear if they're going to be able to have that, and it's in an area that might be more affected in the summer than it is right now, given how it's kind of a rolling uh, contamination mm -hmm. that's taking place. So, so they they can they they have a lot of room to be flexible. I mean, and and it's incumbent on the party leaders right now to respond to the crisis on their part by saying, let's do the campaign in ways that are safe. remind everyone that we're speaking with Julianne Zelizer of Princeton University about the pandemic and politics and please get your questions in using the chat function on YouTube live or you can tag me on Twitter at US of disaster or you can email me directly question to SGK 23 at drexel.edu. Julian, I want to stay with this with the Democrats um, for a minute and uh, there was some uh, Cuomo has done I think an extraordinary job and really shown how federalism actually works in a crisis that governors can become as important, or I would argue in this moment, more important than the president. Um, and so there's been this discussion of, well, you know, uh, who's to say the superdelegates don't somehow get behind uh, Cuomo and we have some sort of a revolution at the, at the convention, maybe even a digital convention, and we don't end up with Joe Biden as the nominee. That seems a little far-fetched to me, but at the same time, those conventions can be volatile. Does the math work on that or no? Joe Biden is the nominee. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I put on Twitter, a couple people have asked me that in the last few days. Uh, can there be some kind of switch? Can the superdelegates, you know, can he be nominated and the delegates move uh, in a different direction? And, and I instantly always answer it's far-fetched or that's not going to happen. And then I step back and say, why am I possibly saying that? after what happened in 2016, <laughs> after what we're seeing now. I mean, who imagined this was all gonna happen? And, and yet it's happening and these questions are front and center. I, I still don't think it's gonna happen simply because I think uh, despite this kind of speculation, most democratic delegates, including the super delegates, will be settled on Biden as a candidate. I think uh, they like him, I think they're worried about, can he do this? 
Uh, but I do think there's support, and I think that's only going to solidify uh, as as this gets uh, worse. And and Cuomo is not, you know, he is doing. I think he's doing a very good job. There's critics who say he's not doing as good a job as Governor Newsom in California, or some others uh, who who have stepped forward. He's also untested. I mean, he didn't run, uh, and there was a reason for that. He also draws a lot of heat for parts of his record and compromises he's made and his style is not a right. style meant to earn a lot of friends. Um, and so none of that's all an unknown. So Democratic delegates are going to think about that. Uh, Biden is now a known commodity. So, so I think it will go to Biden, but it would be surprising if there's not some promise uh, that, uh, that Cuomo and some of these other governors are not going to be officials high up uh, in this administration. Because you're right. I mean, they are the face of the party when the rest of the party has been absent. And they have a unique platform where they can not be political, uh, but really promote what the party is about. And I think for a lot of voters right now, Cuomo is the best advertisement for the Democratic Party. Uh, he is living and doing on a daily basis what a lot of voters would like that uh, is different than what they're seeing from the White House. Yeah, I've been thinking that, you know, just like Rudy Giuliani really became the face of the 2004 convention for Republicans, that maybe Cuomo is going to become the face of this, of this, uh, well, if they have a convention. Whatever convention happens, Democrats are going to want to put him and Newsom um, right out front. And even listening to you talk, I'm sort of wondering, is, is Cuomo somehow... Is he our next Health and Human Services Secretary or the next DHS Secretary? Is that kind of what you, yes. what you have in I mean, mind here? I, I would have said that he's natural to be Vice President at this point. I mean, uh, if that, that was uh. open for Biden, put him on the ticket. You have the highest profile Democrat right now uh, who, who, could, uh, who could run. But Biden did promise that he was going to uh, nominate a female uh, uh, running mate. And so I, I just don't think, you know, he wants a Bush right. moment going back on his first big promise like this for a hugely important constituency. So yes, yeah, something on, uh, on, on intelligence security. I, I mean, I don't, any position yeah. at this point, these are the heroes of 220 uh, politically. I mean, the, the healthcare workers are the heroes on the ground and the delivery workers, uh, but politically they are the heroes right now. So why wouldn't uh, Biden say, I mean, I think he should, he could probably not name some of his cabinet right now and say that, that would generate excitement. This is who I'm going to pick. This is who my team will be. This is what you get January 221 if you elect me. And he should be surrounded by a lot of these governors who are doing exactly the right thing. I had thought up until a month ago, Stacey Abrams or Char were definite shoe-ins for the vice presidential, presidential pick. And now I'm not wondering if it isn't the governor of Michigan, Governor Whitmer, particularly after the, the battle that she picked with President Trump. He picked it first and then she went after it. They both found something politically expeditious in that moment. They played it in their own, in their own way. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Has, is that the kind of thing we should be looking at, these governors who've yeah, I mean the discussion, the, the discussion of who who the candidates might be, the VP pick has changed in the last few weeks, and uh, she's one of them. And there's there's another uh, a number of governors who I've seen floated who I, I don't know enough about. I don't know their backgrounds, but clearly the Biden team is looking to that pool in Michigan. She's drawn a lot of real uh, kind of uh, uh, praise, and then a bunch of the governors have. So. Um, I don't know. Vice presidential picks, I never like to guess because usually it's no one who's on a list. Right. So you're always wrong. It's a setup. Um, <laughs> but I think, I, I think you can't, as a Democrat in this crisis, ignore the gubernatorial pool, mm -hmm. uh, female male, that has, has been uh, so outspoken, so visible. I mean, they also are visible. So given mm -hmm. what we're talking about, it's hard for Democrats. Even in the news right now, there's just not a lot of political coverage. Uh, it, it's, it's really been shrunk. I mean, if you turn any network on, most of the discussions are with doctors or with, uh, you know, politicians on the front lines or healthcare workers, as it should be. But that means for politics, there's just not a lot of space. And so the governors have this space from now until it ends. Uh, and so I think Biden's going to be looking seriously, not only for cabinet uh, kind of predictions or promises, 
but also for that VP pick. Uh, it's always, um, for me, very dangerous to try to do any kind of analysis of Trump's decision-making process. But I want to stick with the governors here for a second. Um, because, you know, the Stafford Act and the way that um, our federal disaster structure works gives the president extraordinary powers in, in disaster to, to declare major disasters, to funnel funds, I mean, even to use the Defense Production Act. Um, and some people have seemed a little bit surprised that Trump would play favorites in this moment. And, and I don't mean he's deciding this number of ventilators should go to this state and this should go to that state. But he does have discretion. And there's good evidence, good research to show that presidents in election years particularly are attentive to electoral politics when they make disaster declarations. Are you worried about that? Do you see him doing that? I mean, is there a way to analyze his strategy of, of who's on the in list with Trump and who's on the out list? Well, if you've been following his presidency, there's no reason you shouldn't be worried. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the whole impeachment trial and, and hearings, it was all about this issue. Uh, here, is there a president who's willing to use his policy power for personal ends? That, that was the story. And, and those who voted to impeach him said, that's just not tolerable. And they always said, imagine this in another situation that was more immediate, not Ukraine, but what happens if there was a hurricane? That was the example always given. Yeah, right. And he said, well, you get it if you come out and say you support me in 220 kind of thing. And, and, and we've seen other examples. That's who he is. Uh, uh, he, he is uh, in, intensely political in that way. Uh, he sees very few boundaries about how... Uh, you can do this and what you're allowed to do. Uh, and right now, I, I can't imagine that there's, he ignores red, blue maps as he's thinking uh, of how this is all going to play out. And the comments that he has made about Schumer uh, just recently, and he's made the same about Cuomo, and now he likes Cuomo because Cuomo has figured out if you praise the president, you yeah. get in his good favor. Um, this is how he thinks. And, and uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous stuff uh, because not only is it a bad way to do policy, uh, especially if you're doing this on steroids, but it actually won't work. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a myth in terms of being able to solve this in a few states and not others. It's, it's a disease that spreads uh, and people will travel. You'll never cure this thing. Uh, so, so I think there's a lot of reason to be worried about that. The only hope is the constant hope with the Trump presidency it's the, the Dr. Fauci hope that there are people uh, who can push back. Uh, he's one of the strongest that we've seen in terms of going against that basic um, tendency of President Trump. It's interesting the the people I've had a chance to speak with at FEMA, for example, it's exactly this thing. It's, you know, you, you turn on the TV and you see one thing, but then you talk to experts in the bureaucracy, the so-called deep state. And I always come away from those discussions feeling better because they have a, they know the law, they know the norms, they know the practices, they're working their tails off out there. But this whipsaw communications, even in the last few days, should we or should we not have masks, is trying for them, grinding for them. I mean, it was already bad in, in so many science agencies, but now it's across the entire bureaucracy. I mean, do you think we're at a moment where Trump's inadequacy, his unpredictability just finally breaks the bureaucracy and we have sort of open rebellion in the ranks where people say we just have to follow a sensible course not what not what trump is doing i sort of I, when i see anthony fauci at a press conference i sometimes think he's just about to say don't listen to this guy listen to me you know of course he doesn't because he's a professional but i don't know it, it, what do you think about the bureaucracy can it hold together under trump in this moment I think parts of the bureaucracy are doing that and they're, mm. they're doing better work and, and they're engaged in more open pushback than we've mm. seen in other times. Uh, you know, before when, when the president did this on diplomacy, the State Department kind of crumbled rather than rising up and stopping it. But this is a different kind of situation. Mm. I mean, everyone in the bureaucracy not only has the uh, feeling of obligation that you talked about and uh, the sense of mission that they feel the president is often jeopardizing. They are real people. So they're living in the world that is affected by this. They have family members who are living, they are in lockdown and they have the same fears of catching this and, 
and uh, it being lethal or, or tremendously debilitating. And so that's the kind of crisis that is going to trigger opposition uh, to, to the president. And I, I think you're gonna see more of that, especially the president isn't just a little at odds. He's really been at odds with what most of the nonpartisan experts are saying to do. And, and you can't have mixed messaging when you're in that bureaucracy slash state you know, trying to get people to do the right thing within days so we can stop this. And the president's kind of just, you know, throwing water on all of this uh, with one bad statement. So, so I think that's part of why the bureaucracy acts so aggressively right now. Is Mike Pence's political career finished? I think everyone in the inner circle, I, I really do uh, think, might very well be finished other than uh, jobs that are uh, kind of only relevant to the reddest of reddest areas. Um, this is a disaster, this is a calamity. I mean, it's hard when you're sitting in your home as we are and yeah. following it, writing about it, your citizens just trying to find food. What a calamity this is for the country that just happened. Uh, and, and it's not simply that we are shut down. It's not, the numbers you read when we started this are, kind of staggering and we're not even near the end yet. This is a war taking place in terms of the death toll. Uh, and in the economy, it's gonna just take a long time, uh, not only to recover, but a lot of people will lose their jobs and livelihood in the process. Many Americans are losing experiences, uh, whether it's graduation, whether it's weddings, and that matters politically. I mean, you feel it when that all just goes away and you can't bring it back. And so I think everyone associated with the administration that has failed to respond until now, unless they really change and somehow mobilize in heroic fashion, uh, I think they're gonna be politically tarnished for a long time. So what you were just saying, I thought it was really well said that this is a fundamental rupture in American, in the trajectory of American history and probably will be felt across many different policy domains. So just to bring it back again, to the Biden-Sanders um, uh, race, insofar as there's still a race, um, some of these ideas which were deemed even a month ago too out of step, like Medicare for all, um, are they on the table now? Can the Democratic Party move more aggressively towards, I mean, now it just seems like Obamacare feels like a conservative policy flag to be waving. Is it possible that a Bernie Sanders plank in the platform comes in and we really do move in that direction for Democrats? It could be. I mean, it could be ultimately that's part of the compromise that's made. And it's not made just because Sanders had more staying power than Biden supporters thought, which would have been the original way this played out. So they put a plank and make promises that support the Sanders people. But now we're actually in a situation where some of Sanders' ideas or versions of them might be more appealing uh, to not only Democrats, but even some independents and Republicans. I mean, a few months ago when the word trillion was thrown around mm. in discussions of Medicare for all, and we were trillions, but just that one word or the Green New Deal, everyone said, that's crazy. Nothing will ever, we're not going to spend that much money on anything. It's unrealistic, as Biden would say. And yet we just passed a stimulus within, I can't remember how many days it was, uh, that, that, that's a, you know, several of those uh, trillions. Right. And so we're in a new arena. And then this has kind of revealed major strains in our infrastructure, whether it is healthcare and, and what healthcare can provide or access to healthcare to public health is now going to be a big issue in terms of spending on, on a really uh, robust infrastructure because uh, even when this is solved, it will be, uh, or contained, we have to worry about the next one. And, and we have to worry about these happening more frequently. And you can't always shut down the country. So what you need is an infrastructure to track it, to test it, and then to treat it. And all of those are more Sanders-like uh, spending ideas and visions. So I think Democrats are going to include more of that. And I think some of uh, Biden's pragmatism might look very different in the summer in terms of what he's willing to accept. So I've restrained myself for 39 minutes, but now I really want to talk about history. Uh, so I want to ask you, I want to ask it in this way, based on your knowledge of American history and leadership. 
you get five minutes with President Trump this afternoon because he's looking for a historical example of a leader in crisis, and maybe they got off on the wrong foot in the crisis and they need to regroup. Where are you going to point him? What historical parallels? Which presidents, or it doesn't even have to be presidents, but you know, American leaders where they were facing a disaster. Maybe things didn't go the way they wanted at the beginning, and then they righted themselves and they brought things around the way that that helped the country. Do you have anything for him? Sure, it's the easy one. It's the standard one. FDR. I mean, FDR faced two crises of immense <clears throat> magnitude. The depression was like this in that it affected the entire body politic. It was severe, and that was very long. Uh, and FDR rallied in so many ways uh, from his ability to communicate and create calm and confidence in where this was all going to his willingness to use presidential authority and power mm. and work with Congress to just put the uh, kind of mechanisms of government to work, not necessarily even to solve the depression, but to create some base of normalcy with social safety net programs, public works programs, and more. And he did the same thing in World War II. Uh, and, and, and the lesson for a, a Trump isn't simply FDR is this classic model of leadership, and overall, his programs really worked pretty well, even though initially there was lots of stumbling and, and some programs were really off and, and, and didn't do what was needed to be done. But he was immensely successful. He created a coalition that outlasted him. He's reelected many times. He's immensely popular. He's still regarded as one of the great presidents. And, and, and so you could imagine if President Trump thought a little differently about politics, Right now, he could be doing things that are good for the nation uh, and at the same time good for his reelection and legacy. Uh, he doesn't, and that's a big puzzle about him. Uh, he's still dealing with the map in some ways of 2018 rather than 2020. But FDR is, is a leader uh, from the fireside chats to the World War II mobilization, production mobilization of resources we needed. That's the model that we would need President Trump to look at right now. Mm. Do you see the presidency changing through and after this pandemic is over? I mean, we're looking at, it's a term I use, slow disaster. It's gonna play out over time. It's gonna, there could be various different events within it. Not until we reach a vaccine and maybe after, are we gonna say we reach some kind of resolution here? So do you think in that period of time, you're gonna see fundamental changes to the, to the executive branch, to the presidency? Well, the presidency, I would assume you would. I mean, usually crises tend to expand the power of the presidency, mm. and, and it doesn't go back to where it was. Um, that's how executive power has, has grown, as you know, throughout the 20th, 21st century. Uh, and, and you'd expect that, but I don't know. He's not invoking, he doesn't seem to want to use his power that much right now, uh, ironically, ironically enough. Uh, but my guess is the demands of this as it unfolds will require more presidential muscle. Uh, and, and, you know, now he's using the Defense Production Act, for example, on certain industries. And so if I'm just looking at the history, we will come out of this with a, a stronger uh, a presidency, uh, a more robust presidency than, than when we started. Um, but at the same time, I think governors might kind of emerge, as you said, with federalism. Uh, they might emerge as bigger players too. So uh, you might have an expansion of executive authority, not just in Washington, uh, but even, even in the state houses as a result of this. Today, Governor Cuomo was uh, announcing how he's going to use the power he has to redirect resources in New York, moving things from one hospital to another. So that's another example where you see a governor doing that. Have you ever seen the country this polarized? Yes, I mean, it's been this polarized for a while. And Civil War notwithstanding, I, I, I'm thinking back to your example of Roosevelt and whether or not he, he faced this level of polarization as he was enacting those, those big sweeping, sweeping reforms. Yeah, we are, we are in, uh, this era is one of the most polarized in terms of uh, party polarization. So the 60s, you had a lot of polarization. It wasn't along the lines of party um, by the late 1960s, but we are now in a period, and, and this is what I spend a lot of my time writing about, uh, not simply people disagree, 
but the forces of political polarization are deeply embedded in how our institutions work, from how the parties work to the media uh, to much more. And that doesn't go away uh, in crises. It didn't go away after 9-11. And I think it's kind of shocking to people right now. It's not going away right now. Uh, and so you see the consequences when that's playing out as we need to actually be more unified in what to do. That's the disastrous moment that isn't as clear uh, in normal times. You know, everyone laments party polarization is dangerous. It's bad if, if the uh, parties can't get along and, and do what's necessary uh, or if different states work in different ways or if people are listening to different media and not getting the same information. It's one thing to say that in relatively normal times, but when we are daily wondering, when does the economy come back? When do our lives come back? When will we start to lower the number of people dying overnight? That polarization, it, it, it's clear how debilitating it can be. I was looking at one of the maps, I think it was in the New York Times where they were showing the regional differences um, in the response, this disaster, is unlike any we've really ever had and that every state and every territorial emergency operations center and every municipality in America is responding simultaneously. I mean, only ever in the Cold War did we do serious planning for a disaster national in scope. The 1918 pandemic, as you point out, played out that way, but we had no federal apparatus to really, to really deal with that. And yet this Times maps are showing um, the very different approaches that different governors have taken and even they had one map that showed the amount of um, the distance people were traveling. Were they keeping a normal travel schedule, a half curtailed travel schedule, um, or no travel at all? And that map to me was jarring at a number of levels, but one of the levels was that it basically, the entire old Confederacy was discernible as a part of the country that seemed to be taking a different approach to this disaster than those in the Northeast or, or in the West. I mean, there seem to be deeper patterns there around trust in, in government, about localism, maybe about trust in science. I don't know totally how to interpret that. And the social media has been alive with, you know, arguments about, no, it's rural versus urban, or it's about religion versus irreligion. I don't know if you had a chance to look at those maps or what you make of it, but it seems like we've tapped into some sort of ur politics here in America right now in this moment that transcends Donald Trump. Well, I mean, it, look, it makes sense in that uh, in very partisan, uh, uh, in a very partisan era, if people are, uh, A, philosophically in different places. So these are regions where you just don't trust government. You're not going to trust what they say. You're not going to trust government to be helpful in a moment like this. Uh, if you don't trust expertise, you're not going to listen to a scientist come and say, you need to be in your house for the next month or this isn't going to end you tend to dismiss it. Uh, then they're listening, getting their cues from different political leaders. So mm -hmm. this is a region by and large that uh, kind of uh, lives and dies by the Republican party. They will have been listening to a party that until recently, a lot of officials were downplaying what was going on and engaging in some level. And this is a way to get President Trump rhetoric rather than this is a pandemic that's unfolding. And they'll hear those cues. Uh, they'll listen at some level. And then finally, we literally have different information flows now in the media. And so if this is a, country, a part of the country where the news is coming from Fox, which until recently was downplaying this and saying it was a way to also go after President Trump, you put all that together, no one's going to shut anything down in those regions of the country. They're not going to believe it. Uh, and that's the total ultimate effect of intense polarization in the middle of a crisis. The crisis itself, the disease itself, is not strong enough to break that. I find that extraordinary, but it's maybe just my own uh, presentism sometimes and naivete to think there's a disaster that's big enough to reset that. But those old patterns, those beliefs, those localisms are in many ways um, reflected also in this federalism of America, that local officials have had a lot of power through this, right? And it was the same, I mean, with 9-11, which was not, it was very severe and very traumatic, different than this. But early on, I, I wrote about this in an earlier book, 
And I just, I remember looking at the, really the news and it was the same kind of predictions uh, from politicians, from reporters, from people interviewed that this was so severe. Now we were finally going to come together. Members of both parties stood on the Capitol steps and did a kind of show of unity. But that broke down by October, mm -hmm. one month after they were arguing about airline security. And the parties were in different places. And that would only get worse over the course of the next few years. So we, we overestimate how much these moments can break how our politics works. I mean, I suppose if there's an advantage to democracy the way the United States has framed it, it's that speech and lots of it and angry speech persists throughout almost any moment in our history. And yet we still seem to have transfer of, transfer of power. I mean, maybe we shouldn't let those partisan squabbles bother us so much. But what you were saying earlier is that, and you mentioned science earlier, we still do need some established facts, right? That can cut across party boundaries. I mean, I, I'd like to have robust disagreement about when we should relax the shelter in place orders, for example, but I would like to have those based on uh, Tony Fauci or other scientific experts saying, these are the facts we can present to you. I think that's exactly right. I think I could make an argument that partisanship's good for the country and it's good to have parties with different views. It's good to have that debate. It's good that even in a crisis like this, and, and I mentioned this earlier, there's value to not having everyone agree uh, because politicians make big mistakes and uh, they don't get things right. And often you need the opposition to do things, but you need some kind of boundaries to how partisanship is going to work. You need some kind of agreement on common sets of facts and information before you begin the debate. You don't have that, then you're in a world of chaos. You also need, in terms of how the parties are willing to combat each other, some rules. Uh, it's, it's like any sport. It's fine for the teams to be incredibly competitive. We enjoy watching that, but you do need rules. It's not anything goes because then it's not fun to watch. It's just pure chaos and mayhem. Mm -hmm. Unless it's worldwide wrestling or extreme boxing, right. uh, that's, that's not what you're looking for. And I do think we are now in an era where we have neither of those. We don't have an agreed set of facts and knowledge. That's gone. And, and we have a kind of partisanship. And I tend to kind of put more of the weight on this on the Republicans and the Democrats, because there are more Joe Bidens uh, than in the Democratic Party. Um, meaning, uh, I think the Republicans since the 80s have really moved to a place where it's not simply they are partisan. This is the focus of my book that's coming out soon. Uh, but it's what's a kind what's it called? Of, what's the book called? called Burning Down the House, uh, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of the Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. And, and that's part of the argument. It's not just they were, they were partisan. It's a kind of partisan where, where anything goes, any institution can be torn down and, and norms are irrelevant. So you combine those two, that's the toxicity that we have right now. Uh, and that's what makes it scary uh, because you don't know, you can't have confidence that at some point this is going to work out in the world of politics. We don't know. That would be kind of ignoring where we, what we've seen in recent years. That chaos and the breaking of norms uh, really disturbs me too. And yet when I speak with my students and I speak with young people, they're not focused on that. They're focused on, um, and I think you've written about this, they're focused on health sciences. They're focused on vaccine. They're focused on um, information and big data. Uh, I, I'm trying to have an optimistic moment here, I suppose, in which um, maybe sort of counterintuitively, the younger generation, which we would think wants to break free of norms and rules, maybe they're the ones who are going to actually say, no, science and engineering and good data and social science, this is what we need so that we can have jobs in a country for crying out loud. Does that, do you, does that resonate with you, with your students or are mine just particularly? I think, I mean, I, right now I'm seeing my students on a computer, but I know I wrote an op-ed in CNN about that. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm trying to find good things that can come out of this. Uh, that's part of what I want to do. And I, I do believe there's something to that. There are these moments, horrendous moments in American life uh, that, that shift what young people think is valuable to do once it's over. So after the Great Depression, you know, working for government, public service becomes something that lots of people go into in the 1940s and 50s. That's one of the growth areas of jobs. It's seen as a 
it's a virtuous thing to do uh, as opposed to something that's not worthwhile. After Watergate, obviously, which is another horrendous movement, you have a boon of people wanting to go into journalism and they see this as a great vocation. And I do feel like you're going to see uh, a renewed interest in, in sciences and medicine broadly defined uh, because this has, has really made clear uh, how these institutions need to be strengthened and built. And, and these are the heroes. I mean, most people, while they might follow the politics, they know what the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare workers, they know what they're doing. They're risking their lives right now. So I think it would be a positive outcome if after you know, a decade plus of science getting bashed, this becomes an era when this is over, where younger people in their 20s uh, who are now home from college say, you know what? This is part of what I want to do with my life, and I want to make sure it never happens again. Mm. You, you mentioned journalism. Um, how do you think the media is, is doing right now? We live in a pretty wild media ecosystem. Um, there's not a single voice or even three voices. There's a lot of voices. Can you, what's, your, what's your sense of how the media is coping with this, particularly reporting in ways they've never had to report from before that is distant? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, there's been mistakes. I think the media has struggled like they did in the 2016 election uh, to figure out how do you cover these daily press conferences that turn it into rallies and, and do it in a way that you get information out, but you don't just give a platform to the president. Uh, there's been, you know, uh, the, the partisan news where, as we talked with Fox, where parts of the media are just delivering very politically motivated rather than scientifically motivated information. But overall, I think the press has actually been really good. I think most of our information about what this is, what it's gonna look like, has come from the press, not, not certainly not the president. Uh, it's the governors and the press that have provided this. They've done a pretty good job getting out information on what people need to do. I mean, I think these doctors who are on uh, or science, scientists and you know all the variants from hand washing to face masks to staying at home that's where the information we have is coming from they have the data now on any television channel at how severe this is it's a death count uh and i think that's actually important to put out there because we need mm -hmm. to know and finally now we're starting to see the victims of the uh of the disease and uh, you're seeing it with uh journalists who have it but you're also starting to see, I've noticed in the last few days, more coverage of what's happening in hospitals, uh, what's happening with, with patients. And that's gonna be very important uh, to make sure the public keeps following through and doing what's necessary. I've been, I was spoke with a, a journalist earlier in the week about who's trying to do investigative or rural reporting. Lois Parshley, and she wrote this great piece that was in Vox about Alaska and the, the health system and what's gonna happen in Alaska. And I was just astounded by um, her creativity and the approach, and the approach, particularly as smaller local newspapers have gone away too. The real importance this puts on journalists being creative in their sourcing and having already pre-existing relationships that they're gonna have to draw upon now. So to me, um, you know, I know they're, they're running around their apartments instead of running around town. Um, but boy, the amount of work and legwork they're having to do right now is to me really, really humbling. Um, I have one last little question for you before we, um, close this segment. And that is really just about how you do your work. You know, it's one thing to, um, work about contemporary politics. We, we have a lot of data that's out there, but you're a scholar of the deep American uh, historical experience. And I'm really worried right now about how historians are going to do their, their work. Our record is mostly not digitized. The archives are closed. What it, how will we continue to tell the story of American history from our, from our apartments and, and houses? It's a, it's a very good question. Uh, uh, I mean, you can't. Uh, since things are not digitized, they are now locked up in facilities for a while. No one's going to be able to reach. There are also physical documents, a lot of uh, historical material until recently. I don't know how that's going to be handled uh, as, as we have new kind of public health guidelines. But uh, I, I think, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm finishing a book now, another book, 
but I'm writing it. So I have all the material. And I was thinking about what you were saying. I was like, if I hadn't gone to the last archive visit a month ago, this is going to be months uh, in the mm -hmm. making. And, and so I think it's going to pose some challenges. It's posing challenges also in the world of publishing. Books are getting delayed and, and, and kind of when printing is going to happen is an issue because you need mm -hmm. people uh, still to do that. So I think it's going to be a challenging time for historians. I think there's nothing. It's like the rest of us, you know it's going to have to go on pause. This is a patience uh, is going to matter if you, if you can have patience more than anything else right now. And I don't think there's any other solution unless you somehow have access to digital documents. Julian Zelizer from Princeton University and also CNN.com. I hope we get a chance, uh, maybe around the time of our digital conventions, maybe we'll get a chance to chat again. It's a great hour with you discussing and learning and thanks very much. Stay healthy and uh, good luck with your two book projects working now. Thanks Thank again. You. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Okay.